Week two. Welcome to the second week of Theology on Tap Winter Series. We are so glad to have you here, truly. Everybody's here and safe and healthy. Our patron for the series was is Blessed Carlo Acutis. I'm going to share a few facts about this, this young man because he's pretty extraordinary. So last week we did four facts. So number five, Carlo had a great concern for his friends, often inviting those being poorly treated or going through difficult situations to his home for support. Some were dealing with divorce at home or being bullied due to disabilities. Fact six, with his love for the Eucharist, Carlo had asked his parents to take him on pilgrimages to the sites of all the known Eucharistic miracles in the world. The mindset of this kid is just, it, it astounds me. Because when I was this kid's age, like, this is the last thing I was thinking about, if I'm honest with myself. But his illness prevented him from happening. That illness was leukemia that he contracted as a teenager. Again, like, the mindset of this kid is astounding to me. He offered his pain for the Lord, the Pope, and the church. So, like, that to have that kind of... Awareness is pretty incredible. Probably why he's on his way to sainthood. Fact eight, Carlo used his tech-savvy skill set to build an entire website catalog of Eucharistic miracles around the world. So he couldn't go physically, did it digitally. He started the years-long project when he was 11 years old. 11 years old. I was worried about like snow in the winter so I could sled. It's crazy. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and pray the opening prayer. Uh, for the canonization of Blessed Carlo Acutis. Acutis, I think. I, someone can correct me later. I'll, I'll get it right, probably by the end of this thing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Father, who has given us the ardent testimony of the young Blessed Carlo Acutis, who made the Eucharist the core of his life and the strength of his daily commitments, so that everybody may love above all else. Let him soon be counted among the saints in your church. Confirm by faith, nurture my hope, strengthen my charity in the image of young Carlo, who growing in his virtues now lives with you. Grant me the grace that I need. I trust in you, Father, in your beloved Son, Jesus, in the Virgin Mary, our dearest mother, and in the intervention of your blessed Carlo Agatis. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, series theme. Our theme is Go Forth. It's a very missionary theme. It was chosen by our young adult planning team. We worked together the last few months to plan the event. Throughout this series, we're going to discuss how the Lord gives us His very self to be nourished. 
He rejuvenates us, sends us out to spread his love to the world. Our speakers will explore the ways that the Lord restores us, calls us to deeper gratitude, invites us to relationship with those around us, and sends us out on mission to serve. But what does it look like to go forth, love, and serve the Lord in our relationship, workplaces, and homes and neighborhoods? Well, here to talk about that tonight is Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes, who is the ninth bishop of the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. He was ordained a priest in 1983, ordained the Bishop of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 2004, and installed as our bishop in 2010. Bishop Rhodes serves as a professor and then rector uh, Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland from 1995 to 2004. He serves as a chairman of the Committee on Doctrine for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the USCCB, which recently published The Mystery of the Eucharist in the Life of the Church. So without further ado, I introduce Bishop Rhodes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Tony. This is the theology on tap, so put your theology caps on, because I taught the course on the Eucharist at Mount St. Mary's. So this is kind of like in an hour, a condensed version of 30 lectures. So yeah, put on your theology caps. I don't want to forget, I was going to save this till the end, but I thought I'm going to forget. I want to invite you a very personal invitation to the opening of the three-year Eucharistic revival in the United States. In our diocese and every diocese of the country, it will begin on the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, June 19th. It's Father's Day, if you forget the date, remember Father's Day. And I wanted to begin the revival here in a big way. And of course, this is always difficult because it's Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Do we begin it in Fort Wayne or do we begin it in South Bend? People in South Bend don't come to Fort Wayne. And, you know, some go to from Fort Wayne to South Bend. So it's going to be in Warsaw. And we're going to have a Eucharistic procession. And I am hoping for a few thousand people. And I'd love to see all of you and young adults to make that public a witness to your faith in the Most Holy Eucharist. So please mark your calendars. It will be at 3 o'clock p.m. You'll see a lot of information. We're going to publicize a lot. We just got permission from the state of Indiana to close the One Road 15. We'll process with the Blessed Sacrament from Sacred Heart Church to Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, which is about two and a half miles. So mark your calendars. I'm really happy to speak about a theme that's close to my heart, the Holy Eucharist. If you've seen my Episcopal coat of arms, you know that the Eucharist is prominent on my coat of arms. I should have brought a picture of it, but it has a host with rays of light coming from it as Jesus, the light of the world, Jesus in the Eucharist. And it has the letters in Greek, of the first three letters of the name of Jesus on the host. And I use Greek because the language of the old of the New Testament, but also I have some Greek ancestry. My grandfather was an immigrant from Greece. So when you make a coat of arms, you're supposed to have personal things. So there's more in it, Mary's in it, but you can check that out. 
As I said, I taught the course on the Eucharist at Mount St. Mary's, and providentially, I was ordained a bishop, as you heard, in 2004, which was the year proclaimed by John Paul II as the year of the Eucharist. So uh, that was amazing. And I remember, after being ordained a bishop, going to all of the vicariates of the diocese, which were there were 10 or 12, and I had a votive mass of the Holy Eucharist and preached on the Eucharist. That's how I began uh, my episcopacy. And as Tony mentioned, I worked a lot and led the writing of the document approved by the U.S. bishops, the mystery of the Eucharist in the life of the church, which um, was approved by a huge majority, despite all the controversy in the media. It was approved in June, I mean in November. It's just, I think just now, a uh, printed version is, is being published, uh, but of course it's online. The Eucharist, of course, is a mystery of faith. And after the consecration at Mass, what does the priest say or sing? The mystery of faith. And the people respond with one of three memorial acclamations. We either respond by saying, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Or we say or sing, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Or the third option, save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. So when the priest declares the mystery of faith, you respond by acclaiming the sacramental truth that Christ and his sacrifice is now present on the altar, recalling his saving work and its redemptive effects. You have set us free. The Eucharist contains the church's mystery of faith. And the faithful, all of you, announce this central truth of the faith. We're called to conform our lives to this mystery like Carlo Acutis did. And we're lifted up by this mystery. We're divinized by it. I'll talk about divinization a little later. Now, only faith can truly immerse us in the understanding of this great sacrament. Only faith gives us access to the deepest truths about the Eucharist. In his encyclical on the Eucharist, St. John Paul II wrote, that the Eucharist is the church's treasure and is a great and transcendent mystery, one that taxes our mind's abilities to pass beyond appearances. It does, doesn't it? It taxes the ability of our mind to pass beyond appearances, appearance of bread, appearance of wine. And John Paul says that here our senses fail us. And then he quotes the famous words from the great hymn of St. Thomas Aquinas, the adoro te devote. I don't know if you know Latin, but this is the part. Visus tactus gustus in te falitur. Sight, touch, and taste in thee are each deceived. In other words, what we see and touch and taste in Holy Communion 
is not what is really there. It's not bread and wine. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Now, the hymn continues, the Adoro Te Devote continues, said, Auditu solo tuto creditor, the ear alone most safely is believed. The ear. So what is to be believed from hearing? The words of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. Him then goes on, Credo quid quid dixit dei filius, nil hoc verbo veritatis verius. I believe all the Son of God has spoken. Then truth's own word, there is no truer token. So we believe what was spoken by the one who is the truth, the Son of God. And there's nothing more true. This is what Thomas Aquinas is saying. There's nothing more true than the words spoken by the one who is the truth. So think about John 6. Many disciples left Jesus after his bread of life discourse in John's gospel, which was Jesus' teaching on the true reality of the Eucharist. Of course, they were shocked. They were shocked by Jesus' words about his flesh being true food and his blood true drink. They were shocked when he said, in addition to that, that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. They just couldn't accept these words about the reality of the Eucharist, the radical realism of this mystery. So many left, many abandoned him, but the 12 apostles didn't leave him. And when Jesus asked them if they wanted to leave, Peter spoke up, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So they didn't understand what Jesus had just said, but they believed. Now, back to John Paul in his encyclical, when he says that the great mystery taxes our mind's ability to pass beyond appearances and our senses fail us, as Thomas Aquinas wrote. And John Paul continues, Yet faith alone, rooted in the word of Christ, handed down to us by the apostles, is sufficient for us. Allow me, like Peter, at the end of the Eucharistic discourse in John's gospel, to say once more to Christ, in the name of the whole church, and in the name of each of you, Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the Eucharist is a mystery of faith that greatly surpasses our understanding. It calls for sheer abandonment to the word of God. Now, in his encyclical, John Paul spoke of Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and her faith in this regard. He wrote this, If the Eucharist is a mystery of faith, which so greatly transcends our understanding as to call for sheer abandonment to the word of God, then there can be no one like Mary to act as our support and guide in acquiring this disposition. He calls Mary the woman of the Eucharist. Many Christians do not believe in the fullness of the mystery of the Eucharist. Many Protestants have 
some faith in the Eucharist, but many do not believe that the Eucharist is the real and substantial presence of Jesus. As you probably know, there's also a crisis of Eucharistic faith among many Catholics, which is one of the reasons why we bishops wrote the document. Recent polls have shown that many Catholics consider the Eucharist to be a mere symbol. I ask myself this question, why is this? And one thing I would point to as an explanation, although you can think about maybe some of your peers, if you know some who don't believe in the real presence, but one thing I think it's rationalism or scientism, which has had a strong grip on the Western world for a couple of centuries, not just now. The conviction that the only reality is what reason can grasp by its own resources, like the scientific method. But this is a very narrow and suffocating view of the world, a materialistic vision. Now, there's another extreme because people react to that, and it's very dangerous, which is the dangerous realm of the irrational, which we see today, for example, in the fascination with various New Age practices. We're not irrational. What we believe about the Eucharist goes beyond human reason, but it's not irrational. Reason does have a part to play in the growth of our understanding of the Eucharist. That's why, what's theology? Faith seeking understanding. So there is this aspect of reason. You know, we're, as Catholics, we're never just faith alone. That was Martin Luther. We, you know, we reject fideism, faith alone. And we reject rationalism, reason alone. It's faith and reason. You know, John Paul, famous encyclical on faith and reason, Fides et Ratio, where he says that faith and reason are like two wings on which we can rise to the contemplation of truth. And in this uh, encyclical on faith and reason, John Paul wrote, even if faith is superior to reason, there can never be a true divergence between faith and reason, since the same God who reveals the mysteries and bestows the gift of faith has also placed in the human spirit the light of reason. This God could not deny himself, nor could the truth ever contradict the truth. So without faith, we cannot rise to the truth about the Eucharist. But this faith is not irrational. It transcends reason. It doesn't reject it. After all, it was through reason, illumined by faith, really through philosophy, for example, that the church and its great doctors like Thomas Aquinas came to explain the real presence with the term transubstantiation. It's reason, philosophy. Transubstantiation is above reason, but it's not against reason. The Eucharist is something entirely supernatural. It's a miracle, but it's not contradictory or impossible. The Council of Trent addressed this question in its definition of the real presence, and I quote, there is no contradiction in the fact that our Savior always sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, according to his natural way of existing, 
and that nevertheless, in his substance, he is sacramentally present to us in many other places. We can hardly find words to express this way of existing, but our reason, enlightened through faith, can nevertheless recognize it as possible for God, and we must always believe it unhesitatingly. That's the Council of Trent. So think about this doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. It rests on the omnipotence of God and the divinity of Jesus Christ. Just as God can create the world out of nothing, so he can change one thing into another by his word. There's nothing contradictory to reason about the substantial conversion of one substance into another by God. God has dominion over being. He is the supreme being. He is being itself. He can take any being and make it into any other being of any kind. He's the Lord of being. And this is what happens in transubstantiation. It's a unique conversion, this transformation of bread and wine into Christ. But it's not impossible for the Lord of being to do this. God can operate outside the natural order that he created. Now, God cannot make, you know one thing God can't do? He can't make a square a circle. That would be a contradiction. But he can disjoin what he put together, the substance and the accidents. Okay, substance and accidents. Accidents are appearances. And that's what he does in the Eucharistic change. He changes the substances of bread and wine into the substance of Christ with the accidents, appearances, of bread and wine remaining. Now, we're tempted to judge all reality by appearances. But there's more to reality than appearances. With faith, we believe that beyond the appearances of bread and wine, there is Christ. And why do we believe? Because of Christ's word. So I repeat what St. Thomas Aquinas wrote in Adoro Te Devote. Sight, touch, and taste in thee are each deceived. The ear alone most safely is believed. I believe all the Son of God has spoken. Then truth's own word, there is no truer token. So I've been speaking about our faith in the real presence, about transubstantiation. The truth of the Eucharist as the real and substantial presence of Jesus does not exhaust the mystery of the Eucharist. In fact, there are three aspects of the Eucharist that are essential. I've been talking about just one, presence, the real presence. But there's two other aspects to this mystery that are essential sacrifice and communion, presence, sacrifice, and communion. We will not truly appreciate the great mystery of the Eucharist 
if we neglect any of these three aspects. And in the USCCB letter, document on the mystery of the Eucharist and the life of the church, we look at or highlight all three aspects, presence, sacrifice, and communion. The Eucharist, and I'm going to look at each of these areas, but kind of to bring it all together, let me present it this way. Pope Benedict XVI wrote an apostolic exhortation called Sacramentum Caritatis. It's on the Eucharist. He calls it the sacrament of love or the sacrament of charity. And to me, this kind of gets to the very heart of what the Eucharist is. And the first paragraph of this exhortation is so rich, I'm going to quote it in its entirety. The sacrament of charity, Pope Benedict writes, the Holy Eucharist is the gift that Jesus Christ makes of himself, thus revealing to us God's infinite love for every man and woman. This wondrous sacrament makes manifest that greater love which led him to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did indeed love them to the end. In those words, the evangelist, St. John, wrote that Jesus loved them to the end. In those words, the evangelist introduces Christ's act of immense humility. Before dying for us on the cross, he tied a towel around himself and washed the feet of his disciples. In the same way, Jesus continues in the sacrament of the Eucharist to love us to the end, even to offering us his body and his blood. What amazement must the apostles have felt in witnessing what the Lord did and said during that supper? What wonder must the Eucharistic mystery also awaken in our own hearts? So let's look at this wondrous mystery, you know, the mystery of faith. And I want to invite you to think about these three essential dimensions. It's a mystery of presence, a mystery of sacrifice, mystery of communion. As the sacrament of love to the end, the Eucharist manifest, manifests these three aspects of love. Think about a lover and his beloved. Jesus is the bridegroom, okay? The church is his bride. The Eucharist embodies Jesus' spousal love for his bride. One of the things I was asked to do in this talk is to bring in the theology of the body. So this is it. Okay. So the Eucharist embodies Jesus' spousal love for his bride. It's a mystery of presence. The lover dwells with the beloved. Jesus dwells with us, his beloved church in the Eucharist. He dwells with us. That's the mystery of presence, the real presence. It's a mystery of sacrifice. The lover, bridegroom, gives himself in sacrifice for the beloved. So when you think about presence, it's with when you think about sacrifice, it's for. 
Jesus's love for us, the church, is sacrificial. He gave his life for us on the cross. In the Eucharist, okay, he dwells with us, presence with his beloved church, with a love that is infinitely sacrificial. The Eucharist is his sacrifice, represented at every Mass. And third, the Eucharist is a mystery of communion. So the lover, okay, dwells with us, gives himself for us, gives himself in the most intimate way to the beloved, and unites himself to us. The love of the bridegroom for his bride is unitive. And that's one of the essential things of marital love is union. So he gives himself not only for us, but to us in Holy Communion. He unites himself to us and nourishes us with his life. So it's a mystery of communion. So we can call the Eucharist, which Benedict calls the sacrament of love, I think it was John Paul who said it's the sacrament of the love of Jesus, the bridegroom, for his bride, the church. So he dwells with us, mystery of presence. He gives himself for us, a mystery of sacrifice. And it's body broken for us, his blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And he gives himself to us as food for our souls mystery of communion. Jesus instituted the sacrament of the Eucharist on the night before he died at the Last Supper when he said to the apostles, do this in memory of me. It's good to ask ourselves a fundamental question. Why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? Well, I've already intimated at the reason. Out of love for us. He did so to dwell with us presence, to give his life for us, sacrifice, to give himself to us, unite himself to us, communion. But think about this. He already did these things 2,000 years ago. He came to dwell among us when he became a man in the incarnation. He gave his life for us when he freely accepted death on the cross. He already gave himself to us at the crucifixion. Well, Jesus instituted the Eucharist so that these events would not only remain in the past. They are not confined to the past. The Catechism says, and this is a great quote, that all that Christ is, all that he did and suffered for all men, participates in the divine eternity and so transcends all times. It's a beautiful truth of Catholicism, you know, that these past events don't just belong to the past. There's the divine eternity that these things become present for us now. Not just the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, but also his sacrifice becomes present on the altar. So I want to delve into each of these uh, a little bit more. I've talked a lot about real presence already, but I want to get into it a little bit more. And then I'll talk about sacrifice and communion. Presence. Jesus instituted the Eucharist to be the sacrament by which he would continue to dwell with his disciples on earth in his sacred humanity. 
even as his body would ascend into heaven. He's no longer present in the same way that he was during his earthly life. Because when he was here on earth, Jesus was subject to the limitations of time and space. He was physically present for just 33 years. And it was in a very small geographic area, you know, Galilee and Judea. In becoming present in the Eucharist, he allows his disciples through the centuries, including you and me, to have contact with his sacred humanity. He's present not just in one place, but in all the tabernacles of the world. In the Eucharist, he's present among us now as our Redeemer. The lover continues to dwell with his beloved. He remains with us during our earthly pilgrimage, though his majesty is veiled or hidden behind the appearances of bread and wine. He is present under the humble and common species of bread and wine. Well, as a little aside, the Eucharist teaches us humility. And I have to share one favorite quote because the Sisters of St. Francis are here. St. Francis once said to the friars, speaking of the Eucharist, Behold the humility of God. The Son of God humbled himself in becoming man at the Incarnation. He humbled himself when he died on the cross for us. He's humble now by his sacramental state in the Eucharist. Eucharist is the greatest of the seven sacraments. It's unique among the sacraments because it's the only sacrament. Think about this. It's the only sacrament that contains Christ himself in all his personal reality and makes his humanity present in our midst. He doesn't do that in the other sacraments. In the other sacraments, Christ confers his power, his grace, usually through material elements like water, oil, chrism. But the water or the oil are not substantially changed. They're blessed. They're consecrated. The bishop consecrates the chrism. They don't become Christ. In the Eucharist, the elements are substantially changed. They become Christ himself. The Eucharist contains Christ himself in his full, substantial presence, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. He's present with the very same humanity that he received from the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's the same body that she carried in her womb. It's the same humanity as when he walked this earth. The same body that hung on the cross and rose from the dead. The Eucharist contains Christ's glorious body as he now exists in heaven at the right hand of the Father. Now, up until the ninth century, there was little or no controversy about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Did you realize that? I mean, remember all the controversies, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon and Ephesus about the divinity of Christ, etc.? But there was never any controversy about the substantial conversion of bread and wine into Christ's body and blood. Now, it was in the ninth century that 
and I really don't have time to get into that controversy. We'll be here till midnight or later controversies about the real presence and the substantial conversion. But I like to point out that these controversies led to an increase in the understanding of the dogma of the real presence and transubstantiation, as well as a beautiful growth in devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, especially in the 12th century and the 13th century, culminating in the great teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas on the Eucharist, and the institution, by the way, of the Feast of Corpus Christi in the year 1264. And it was for that feast that Thomas Aquinas wrote the liturgical office and some of those beautiful hymns like the Adoro Te Devote and O Salutaris. I believe that the doctrine of transubstantiation built on the distinction between the notions of substance and accidents is a beautiful example of the interaction between faith and reason, between Catholic theology and metaphysics. Transubstantiation became disputed then by the Protestant reformers in the 16th century. So the controversies continued, and the Council of Trent responded by affirming that after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained under the appearances of those perceptible realities. Truly, really, and substantially present. That's the Council of Trent. The substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist is therefore a dogma of Catholic faith. It's a dogmatic teaching of the Council of Trent. I had There was one uh, theologian criticized me during the writing of the document, he'd gotten the draft, and he said, this is pre-Vatican II teaching. About the real I said, yes, it is. It's the teaching of the Council of Trent, but it's also the teaching of the Second Vatican Council, and it's the perennial tradition of the church. Trent also affirmed the change of the substance of bread and wine into the whole substance of Christ's body and blood, and declared that the Catholic Church has fittingly and properly named this change transubstantiation. Fittingly and properly. Okay, it's a philosophical term, so, you know, it's, it's a fitting term, is what the Council of Trent said. It also taught the doctrine of concomitance, that the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity exists under the species of both the bread and the wine, because the parts of Christ, risen from the dead, are united together. Trent also reaffirmed the great merit of Eucharistic adoration. On this matter of the real presence, I wish to end with the teaching of Pope St. Paul VI at a time when there were some challenges to the doctrine of transubstantiation from certain Catholic theologians who were proposing alternate theories to explain the Eucharistic change, theories like transsignification and transfinalization. I actually had a seminar when I was in at uh, the university, Gregorian University as a seminarian, or I don't know if I was a priest at that time, but 
It was all on transubstantiation the whole semester. And because this controversy with these theologians wanting to use other terms, you know, some didn't want to use that term transubstantiation anymore. So I remember writing a, my main paper on this topic, kind of defending what Paul VI said when he responded. He wrote a wonderful encyclical on the Eucharist called Mysterium Fidei, the mystery of faith. That was back in 1965. So you have these theologians saying, no, you have to find other terminology. The Pope explained that the Eucharistic consecration certainly does bring about a change of meaning, transsignification, and a change in finality, transfinalization. But, Paul VI said, these changes come about because of an ontological change by which the old realities, the substances of bread and wine, have been converted into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. And so, therefore, St. Paul VI said, every theological explanation of the mystery must affirm that the bread and wine objectively cease to exist after the consecration, having been changed into the reality of Christ's body and blood. And Paul VI says that this mysterious change is very appropriately called by the church transubstantiation. So anyhow, I've talked a lot of real prayer. Mystery of sacrifice. This is part of the mystery that I think needs more emphasis because I'm not quite sure that a lot of Catholics, although we do speak of the sacrifice of the Mass, the Eucharistic sacrifice, I'm not sure a lot of Catholics, if they were talking to Protestants, would be able to really articulate this. So think about it this way. As I said, in the Eucharist, Christ gives himself or gives to us, the church, his bride, the very act, the act by which he poured out his life for us on the cross. And he cleanses and sanctifies us, sanctifies the church by the remission of sins. It's an act of infinite love, his death on the cross. He gave to his bride, the church, the continued presence of the very act by which he showed his love to the end. So not only the presence, but the act. And that act was the sacrifice, the Eucharistic sacrifice. He has given us sacramentally not only his presence, but the very act by which he died for our sins. So in the Mass, Christ, the priest, he's the priest, offers himself also as the victim. This is unheard of, that the one offering and the one, what's being offered being the same. He's both the priest and the victim of the sacrifice. Well, he left us this memorial of his sacrifice in the Eucharist so that we can enter into his sacrifice. We can enter into his hour, that hour when he loved us to the end, which is the hour of his passion, death, and resurrection. I think um, Pope Benedict in Sacramentum Caritatis explains this beautifully. He wrote, the Eucharist draws us into Jesus's act of self-oblation. So more than just statically 
receiving the incarnate Logos, we enter into the very dynamic of his self-giving. He gives us his supreme sacrifice of love to be our sacrifice. We join with him in offering it to the Father. The Catechism teaches that the Eucharist is a sacrifice because it represents, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross, because it is its memorial, and because it applies its fruit. We speak of the Eucharist as a memorial of Christ's Passover, the memorial of his passion and resurrection. Now, the Greek word for memorial is anamnesis. Notice that right after the consecration and the mystery of faith, there's like a paragraph that the priest prays in the Eucharistic prayer, which is called the anamnesis. You know, pay attention to that next time you go to Mass, which he talks about how we remember his passion, his death, his resurrection. Now, in the sense of sacred scripture, the memorial is not merely the recollection of past events. It is that, but it's the proclamation of the mighty works wrought by God for men. For example, the Passover. The Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers. Think of Jews celebrating the Passover. Catechism says the Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers so that they may conform their lives to them. In the New Testament, the Catechism says, the memorial takes on new meaning. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and it is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever-present. So, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Now, Protestants will say, oh, you think Christ has to keep being sacrificed again and again and again. No. The Mass, it's one sacrifice. It's the sacrifice once and for all, as Hebrews says, that becomes present. But the neat thing is we can participate in that offering. We unite our lives with his offering. The Second Vatican Council made this so clear. The council said, taking part in the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the source and summit of the whole Christian life, the faithful offer the divine victim to God and offer themselves along with it. And another thing to think about the saints in heaven join us in offering the Eucharistic sacrifice. When you think about Christ's sacrifice, then, is the church's sacrifice, the church's perpetual sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that glorifies the Father. There's no greater prayer that we can offer than going to Mass and uniting ourselves with and offering ourselves with Christ. It's the sacrifice that atones for sin. That's why we call it an expiatory sacrifice or propitiatory sacrifice. Because think about it, Jesus' blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's propitiatory. It's expiatory. 
And the Eucharist applies to us, this to us today. It applies the reconciliation that Christ won for us on the cross. So we gain the fruits of his sacrifice. The very words of the institution of the Eucharist by Christ reveal that the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Now, when I get into debates about with some Protestant friends about the Eucharist as a sacrifice, I just say, well, look what Jesus said. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Okay, it's a sacrifice. The expression given for you implies a sacrifice of expiation offered on our behalf. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that he had come to give his life as a ransom for many. Then, with the cup, Jesus said, this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is sacrificial language, blood being poured out. So Jesus is the true Passover lamb of the new covenant whose blood is poured out in sacrifice and then whose flesh and blood is consumed by the faithful in a new Passover rite of the new covenant. Of course, that new rite is the Eucharist. Now, the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist was understood and believed from the beginning of the church. I love reading the fathers of the church. When you read the fathers of the church, you can tell they taught about the real presence, and they believed the Eucharist was a sacrifice. If you look at the early liturgical texts, for example, the early Eucharistic prayers of the church, it, it's clear the early Christians believed the Eucharist was a sacrifice. They affirm the oneness of the Mass with the sacrifice of Calvary, of which the Mass is the sacramental image. It's the mystical image. It's the same priest making the offering, same victim being offered, Jesus Christ. Christ does not suffer again in the Mass, but his passion is sacramentally represented. Now, this became a controversy, this notion of the sacrificial nature of the Mass, much later. It wasn't a controversy in the first millennium. But Martin Luther and the other Protestant reformers vehemently, I mean, if you read some of these writings, I mean, vehement in their rejection of the sacrificial nature of the Mass. So, again, the Council of Trent responds, a dogmatic response, and solemnly declared, and this is the quote, the sacrifice of the Mass makes the sacrifice of Calvary present on our altars, perpetuating it throughout the ages. It has one and the same victim and one and the same priest, Christ, who offers it through the ministry of his priests. The manner of offering, though, is different because it's unbloody. It cannot be a new bloody sacrifice because Jesus, in his glorious body, cannot die again. His bloody immolation cannot be repeated. And so the Mass represents that bloody immolation of Calvary through an unbloody sacramental separation of his blood from his body. 
Only in this unbloody mode of offering does the sacrifice of the Mass differ from Calvary. So another way to speak of this is we speak of the Paschal mystery of Christ being made present in a sacramental way. His passion and death are made present in a sacramental way. But you know what? Also is resurrection. This is something I think we need to hear more about. John Paul said that we need to, theologians need to write more about this. He said, Christ's Passover includes not only his passion and death, but also his resurrection. The Eucharistic sacrifice makes present not only the mystery of the Savior's passion and death, but also the mystery of the resurrection, which crowned his sacrifice. Now think about this. John Paul says, it is as the living and risen one that Christ can become in the Eucharist the bread of life and the living bread. The victory of the resurrection is therefore also present in the Eucharist. You know, so is his ascension. We receive in communion the body of Christ that has ascended and sits in glory at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Let me get to the last part, mystery of communion. Okay, so mystery of presence, mystery of communion. In the Eucharist, Christ not only dwells with us, presence, not only gives himself for us, sacrifice, but he also gives himself to us in Holy Communion. He becomes our spiritual food and drink. He nourishes us with his body and blood in the Paschal banquet of Holy Communion. The lover enters into the most intimate union with the beloved a nuptial union. The Eucharist makes possible this most intimate union through Holy Communion. It is realized in a fitting way for us as human beings since it's both physical and spiritual, like spousal love. Love between a husband and wife, physical and spiritual. So with us, you know, It's not just spiritual, it's also physical. When we receive communion, we take Christ bodily into ourselves. We join with him in a close physical way. He can then remain for us for about 10 minutes until the sacred species are corrupted by the digestive process. So that 10 minutes after you receive Holy Communion, he's physically with you. Now, you say, well, okay, after the species are corrupted, you don't have the physical presence of Christ anymore, but there is an enduring spiritual effect that's more important because of the spiritual effects of the Eucharist, sanctifying grace, charity, the indwelling of the Trinity is nourished and increased. And in in addition to this, The Eucharist deepens our communion with one another in the mystical body, in fraternal charity. It is the sacrament of church unity. St. Thomas Aquinas was so strong on this. The sacrament of ecclesial unity. Because what does St. Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17? For we being many are one bread, one body, all that partake of one bread. 
So the Eucharist makes the church. The Eucharist binds us into one body by strengthening our unity with Christ and with one another. The Eucharist is intimately connected with the primary purpose or end of the incarnation, the divinization of man, our divinization, giving us a participation in his divinity through sanctifying grace. Now, thinking about this, baptism unites us to Christ. Baptism gives us his new life. Baptism makes us adopted children of God and partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature, that's from the first letter of St. Peter. The Eucharist is the gift that nourishes in us the new life of Christ that we received at baptism. It augments, the catechism says, it augments our union with Christ. And Jesus said this in his Bread of Life discourse. He says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Or some translation, remains in me and I in him. So there's this union, holy communion, preserves, increases, and renews the life of grace that we received at baptism. Spiritual food for our journey to heaven. Nourishment for our growth in the Christian life. It's a fountain of grace for all who are rightly disposed to receive it. It's not a fountain of grace for those who are not properly disposed, which is why if one is in a state of mortal sin, they should not go to Holy Communion. It's not fruitful. The Eucharist is the principal channel for the increase and nourishing of grace and charity in us. It's not the only channel. I mean, obviously, grace, charity, when we get in the other sacraments, when we pray, we do good works, but this is the principal channel. So this role of the, in our divinization, now in the Eastern Fathers of the Church, this idea of divinization is very, very prominent. For example, and I love St. Cyril of Jerusalem, if you ever read his mystagogical catechesis, which are his classes, so to speak, his teachings to the neophytes, those who were just baptized at the Easter Vigil, he had this whole series of, of mystagogical catechesis. And in one of them, he talks about how Holy Communion is ordered to our divinization. And this is what St. Cyril of Jerusalem said. By partaking of the body and blood of Christ, you may become of one body and blood with him. For when his body and blood become the tissue of our members, we become Christ bearers. And as the blessed Peter said, partakers of the divine nature. Some Eastern theologians even speak of the Eucharist as the sacrament of divinization. There's also a very profound prayer in our own Roman liturgy that expresses the idea of divinization. But it's a prayer that the priest doesn't say out loud, so you don't even hear it. But it shows how the Eucharist is the means whereby we share in Christ's divinity. And if you ever notice, the priest says these words quietly during the offertory at Mass when he mixes water with the wine. The priest says quietly, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. The fathers of the church, like 
St. Irenaeus, by the way, last week, it was last week or two weeks ago, Pope Francis named him a doctor of the church. A little late. I mean, he lived in the second century, but I uh, wrote a letter to the Pope as chair of the Committee on Doctrine asking him, supporting the French bishops in requesting that St. Irenaeus be named a doctor of the church. It was funny when I presented this to the U.S. bishops, many of them said to me, I did this from the microphone, to get their support for this letter to Pope Francis. Several of them said to me after the talk, I thought he was a doctor of the church. <laughs> Anyhow, St. Irenaeus frequently taught that the Son of God took on a mortal human nature so that we might be brought to share in his divine nature. Holy communion is the chief sacramental means to bring about this divine interchange, we call it. In Latin, the admirable commercium, this wonderful exchange or interchange, the wonderful exchange between divinity and humanity in the incarnation. Famous words of St. Athan Athanasius, the Son of God became man so that we might become God. The Word took on our humanity, and in exchange, human nature was raised to the divine dignity. This wondrous exchange becomes tangible in the Eucharist. When we participate in Holy Mass, we present what is ours to God, bread and wine, fruit of the earth, so that he will accept them and transform them, giving us himself and making himself our food in order that in receiving his body and his blood, we may participate in his divine life. It's a quote of Pope Benedict, by the way. The Eucharist is the most perfect form of spiritual nourishment we can imagine because it's Jesus himself. He gives us a share in his divine life. We receive Christ in his act of giving himself to the end. So Holy Communion nourishes us with that same love, a love that we're called to live. And the Eucharist, the Lord gives us the strength and the grace to love one another as he has loved us. It is a mystery to be lived, to be offered to the world. We're to live Eucharistic lives, lives of Eucharistic coherence, Eucharistic consistency, to live what we receive. As Pope Benedict famously wrote in Deus Caritas Est, a Eucharist which does not pass over into the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. Finally, the ultimate effect of the Eucharist is eternal life and glory. As Jesus said in his Bread of Life discourse, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This pledge of the future resurrection, St. John Paul II wrote, comes from the fact that the flesh of the Son of Man, given as food, is his body in its glorious state after the resurrection. With the Eucharist, we digest, as it were, the secret of the resurrection. For this reason, St. Ignatius of Antioch rightly defined the Eucharistic bread as a medicine of immortality, an antidote to death. It's a vaccine against death. At every Mass, 
in every Eucharistic prayer, we pray that we will join the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, the apostles, the martyrs, indeed all the angels and saints in heaven as their co-heirs to eternal life. Also at every Mass, we are united to the heavenly liturgy. So I hope that this talk helps you to ponder more deeply the great mystery of the Holy Eucharist, the mystery of faith, a mystery of presence, a mystery of sacrifice, and a mystery of communion. I pray that the Holy Spirit will kindle within all of us, like the Holy Spirit kindled within Carlo Acutis, a sense of wonder and awe at this great gift. And deepen our faith in the Eucharist. Increase our gratitude for this amazing gift. May this great mystery of love be the center of our lives. May we bear witness to it as true disciples of our Eucharistic Lord. Thank you, everybody. Bishop Rhodes, everybody. Thank you, Bishop. I know, Bishop Rhodes, are you still with us? Okay. All right. He's coming. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll come around uh, with a microphone. Good evening, Bishop. Good to see you here tonight. Thanks. Uh, I have a series of like three or four questions. If you don't mind me asking them all at once, they all pertain to like, they all build upon each other. Uh, but I had some confusion about a uh, point you made later in your talk. Um, so first question I have, and it might seem a little bit off, but I was at Mastodon Catholic a couple years back when I first moved up to Fort Wayne, and you were talking about why we believed what we believed, and I think the topic of Mary being ever-virgin came up. So when you're talking about that, what is the theological answer to why we believe Mary was ever-virgin, and more importantly, how she was ever-virgin? Okay, yeah. You know, of course, that is a dogma of faith, the virginity of Mary. Kind of relates to what I was talking about when I was talking about mystery, faith, and reason. And in the case of the um, virginal conception of Jesus, again, we're talking of something that is beyond reason, but it's not against reason because it's, you know, the omnipotence of God. He can bring life as the Holy Spirit descended upon Mary, overshadowed her, and she conceived the Son of God in her womb. The incarnation, it's a miracle. It's beyond human understanding. It's not what happens in usually with human nature. Her perpetual virginity, I mean, the virginal conception of Jesus is, you know, right there in, uh, in Holy sorry, Scripture, always been part of the tradition of the church. There are some Christians who do believe in that, many Protestants, but they don't believe in her perpetual virginity. In other words, they believe that afterwards she and Joseph could have had sex. The thing is, that's not the belief of the church. Even from the early centuries, from the prayers of, in the liturgy and prayers that we have, the fathers of the church, they would pray to Mary as ever virgin. So we have evidence of belief in her perpetual virginity, then theologians can ponder the question, why? And that's, there's some beautiful things about why Mary remained a virgin perpetually. It was her total dedication 
to God and to his will. And it kind of is an image of the church as the bride of Christ. Mary is the image and mirror of the church. Her love is totally pure, and she is the mother of all of us. So her motherhood of grace, it's not the... So it seems very appropriate, and that's what theologians say. It's apt, it's suitable that she would remain a virgin throughout the rest of her life. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. If I could amend that, not, it wasn't simply perpetual virginity, but the sinless birth. Oh, so sinless. Yes. Yeah. And again, that, well, that's the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception that Mary was preserved from original sin from the moment of her conception in view of the merits of her son, Jesus Christ. Can we say, was Mary saved? Yes, she was. She was saved by her son. But unlike with us, she was saved at the moment of her conception. And God could do that because he's all-powerful and he, all-knowing, he knew that she would be the mother of his son. So when Eucharistic miracles happen, uh, like they don't have the wine or they're blessing the host, and the Eucharistic miracles happen, can you describe what happens? Well, there's different ones, different Eucharistic miracles. Uh, Most commonly, it's when, like, blood, you know, comes from the host, or, yeah, that's probably the most common Eucharistic miracle. I would like to, and I remember visiting a couple places like Orvieto, where they have the corporal that has the stains of the blood of Christ, the miracle in Bolzana. But I always like to say to people also, these are kind of extraordinary things to help us in our Eucharistic belief. That's why I believe they happen. But I think we have to keep in focus that the real miracle is the Eucharist itself. That miracle happens at every Mass. So, good question, though. Uh, and so the follow-up then, uh, there's, uh, you shared a quote from the Council of Trent, and then you shared your thoughts on that um, pertaining to how it's not bloody, per se. Can you reiterate that to make sure I'm understanding? Yeah. I remember what you said correctly. Yeah. The sacrifice of Christ becomes present sacramentally in an unbloody manner. So when we speak of the Eucharist as sacrifice, it is the same sacrifice that um, of Jesus on the cross that becomes present, but it becomes present to us in an unbloody manner because Christ no longer, you know, Christ is in his glorified humanity in heaven, in divine glory. And when we receive him, we receive the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, always keeping in mind that that glorified risen body that we receive, it's the same body that died on the cross that, you know, but it's now in a glorified state. So when it comes to the blood, the sacrifice of the Eucharist, when it becomes present on the altar, it's in a sacramental way. It's an unbloody way that the sacrifice comes. That's the only difference. That's the only difference from the sacrifice on Calvary, which was bloody. Okay, thank you, Father. You're welcome. Hi, Bishop. Hello. (laughs) Um, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the main reasons that 
a lot of people struggle with the real presence is, is well, one, because it's a difficult teaching, but also because so many people um, in our pews are poorly catechized. Right. And I'm just wondering, like, how can we start conversations like this about the real presence or about just other aspects of the faith to our brothers and sisters who are maybe not as well catechized or just simply struggling with some of these topics? Great question. Uh, and that's what we're, we bishops are thinking about with the Eucharistic revival. And I think we can catechize, I think it, at Mass, in good homilies. Of course, I wouldn't want a priest preaching an hour and 10 minutes like I did. But you could break that up into like how many homilies. But I think we need to get, I think we should have be substantive in our homilies. I tend to be more catechetical in my homilies. Some people don't think that's good. Some people like it. But I, I do think given our situation, because of a lot of, of um, lack of knowledge of our teachings, I, I think we should be teaching somewhat in our homilies. And there's several opportunities through the year to teach about the Eucharist at Holy Thursday Mass, on Corpus Christi, but even some other times you can talk about some of these issues that I, I've raised. I think also, though, there are a lot of people who are not at Mass. You know, I think Catholic Radio, I think social media. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that we need to teach. And, you know, and I think you can do so as young adults. I mean, just just talking about this with friends or classmates or or others that you know, sharing, you know, this teaching on the Eucharist with others. But we will hope to have through this revival a real impetus for Eucharistic teaching. And then also, there's also what's called the Ars Celebrandi, the art of celebrating. That means, so people's experience at Mass, this is really something I, I think about a lot. Are we celebrating Mass with the proper reverence and beauty that we should? And I think that's really important because faith isn't just from study, you know, you're, you're growing in reason, but, but the experience of the Mass, there should be an atmosphere of reverence and mystery. I'm not going to get into the whole thing of extraordinary form and traditional Latin versus Novus Ordo. It's just that the, the Mass needs to be celebrated with dignity, with reverence. You know, we should have beautiful music. We should show reverence when we enter church. There should be silence and prayer. There should be genuflections when one passes the tabernacle. So I think that's another area where a lot of work is needed. And to be honest, I see it varies from place to place. My own experience, not just in our diocese, but traveling elsewhere. But I think we need to rekindle that because, you know, if someone could say, well, they say they believe this, but, but look, it doesn't look like they believe it the way that, you know what I mean? Uh, so even approaching Holy Communion, like, um, like I, I'm distributing Holy Communion and, you know, like I had a confirmation say, for example, and people are like, you know, like, so going up the aisle there, oh, congratulate, I'm you're about to receive Jesus here, you know, just focus on what, what's happening. Now you have to be, I, mean, I have to be patient, obviously, but, but I'm like, do they realize, you know, I, I think to myself, do they realize what, what they're doing here, who they're receiving? So I think of those things. Yeah. 
Um, Bishop, I your love for the Eucharist is evident, so just thank you for that. It's just a comfort to hear. I'm wondering when you first fell in love with the Eucharist, if you'd be willing to share a little bit of that with us. Oh, thanks, sister. You know, I was raised, you know, in a, my mother was very devout Catholic and my grandmother, my father wasn't Catholic. So I was raised kind of, you know, in a good way. But I think on a personal level where it really, I personally appropriated that faith was when I was in college. I remember in high school, the way the mass was celebrated was in the 70s. It was crazy. I don't even want to, I mean, there was, there'd be rock music and, you know, and everything. And it was, you know, not the reverence. But when I went to college at Mount St. Mary's, I was only there two years and I was thinking about the priesthood. That's when I started attending daily mass and praying before the Blessed Sacrament. And I would say it was then that I kind of realized that this is is really and truly Jesus and touched my heart. And uh, I think it was through, and, and then I started attending mass every day. And um, I was a freshman in college. It was the, I think probably the second half of my freshman year. And then sophomore year, I decided to uh, apply to the seminary and went to the seminary as a junior. But I'd say my re Eucharistic faith really, as on a mature level, was uh, as a college student. And it was just, yeah, um, that has stayed with me. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, I just really want to thank you for coming and speaking. And I know you love being with the, the youth of the church. And I love that. Um, but I do have a question, too. So you were name dropping lots of folks. And so maybe it was Pope Benedict, you said um, something about a a person receiving and then being intrinsically fragmented. So I'm curious what happens um, to a person who, first of all, would receive communion um, not in a state of grace, and then what's happening um, when they're receiving and it's fragmented, um, so they're not like living out the fruit. And then if you could end on the positive with what we ought to do when we receive communion and how that bears fruit in our life. Great. Which I guess you kind of spoke on, but just remind us. Yes. No, great questions. Um, well, I mean, St. Paul wrote in the letter to the Corinthians about how we bring condemnation upon ourselves if we receive the Eucharist unworthily. He said, if we don't discern the body. So there is the importance of being in a state of grace which means one is not conscious of having committed a mortal sin. If one has committed a mortal sin, they need to receive, uh, they need to go to confession, receive absolution. That's the proper sacrament for the forgiveness of sins. So it's really a sacrilege. It does dishonor to the body of Christ if one receives the Eucharist in the state of mortal sin. It also can cause scandal to others. And, but it's spiritually harmful for ourselves to receive in a state of mortal sin because we are receiving and we're not in communion with the Lord, invisible communion. We have to be, the state of grace is being in invisible communion with the Lord. So if one is in a state of sin, mortal sin, one has broken that communion. So that's the prior thing. Now, in, in the Code of Canon Law, Canon 916 says one who is 
conscious of having committed a mortal sin should not receive communion. It's also important, though, to be in visible communion with the church. Okay, so that means that we're, we, we're in communion with the teachings of the church, that we are in communion with the bishops and the pope, that we're, so this aspect of communion has both the invisible and the visible dimension. We can never judge a person's internal state. We can, I cannot judge that someone is in a state of mortal sin. Only God can judge and the person discern that him or herself, that invisible communion. But I can judge the visible communion. So that's why, let's say, someone who publicly dissents from authoritative teaching of the church, they're not in communion with the faith of the church, and they should not receive communion. That a bishop can judge. They may not be in a state of mortal sin, but they're not in a state of visible communion. Anyhow, I'm getting a little bit technical, but we dealt with a lot of this in the document that I was talking about, so it's kind of fresh in my mind. As a matter of fact, one is not to be admitted to Holy Communion if one obstinately persists in manifest grave sin, according to Canon 915. That was the controversy that swirled around President Biden and Speaker Pelosi in this. Anyhow, the other part of your question I think is really important. The Eucharist then calls us to go forth to live what we have received, which means to live Eucharistic lives. What, are, what is a Eucharistic life? It's to love as Christ loved, lives of self-giving love. Now, none of us does that perfectly. I mean, none of us is loving perfectly as Jesus loved us. But he gives us the strength and the grace in the Eucharist to love as he loved. And so hopefully the sign of if we're growing in holiness is are we growing in the virtues? And the greatest virtue, of course, is love. So we contradict the Eucharist. Let's say we go to Mass, we receive Holy Communion, and then we leave and we're, you know, mistreat others and put other people down and are hateful and we're not generous and we're selfish. We're not living the Eucharist. Now, none of us is perfectly self-giving. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, are we growing? Obviously, we still will need to go to confession, and we're not going to be perfect. I mean, Christian life is hopefully a growth in perfection, you know, by the grace of God, opening ourselves to the grace of the Eucharist. But when Pope Benedict says that a Eucharist that does not basically if it doesn't bear fruit in our lives, if we're not growing in love or, or we go forth and we hate our neighbor, it's intrinsically fragmented. This is like being schizophrenic is another way you could say it. I mean, if we're Christian, it's like, okay, I, let's say I go and spend a holy hour and I, I spend an hour in prayer before the blessed sacrament. And then I go out and, but, the way I live is like I'm always put if I'm always putting people down and I'm hateful and and all that. Well, what's the point? We're not living it. You know, that prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, I, it's, it's kind of like false piety. You know, we have to be shaped by the Eucharist, shaped by the love of Christ. It's not salvific otherwise. You know, we'd be like the Pharisees. 
yeah, we're not perfect. We're all sinners. And, and I mean, we approach the Eucharist. We say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter on, under my roof, but say, but the word of my soul shall be healed. Okay, none of us is worthy. And yet, we have to have that interior disposition of repentance, of recognizing our unworthiness, and being in the state of grace to receive the Eucharist, and then to go forth and really strive to live it. We can't just keep a true Eucharistic faith. It's not just, I mean, look at Mother Teresa. Beautiful. I mean, she would see Christ, who she adored in the morning, a few hours of prayer and mass and adoration, and went out and saw his face in the faces of the poor and the poorest of the poor, the sick and the suffering and the dying. That was a Eucharistic life. You know, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. The Jesus that we see in the sacred host, we are called to recognize in the face of the poor and the suffering. You know, all this goes together, the Eucharist and life. That's why Pope Benedict spoke, okay, the Eucharist is a mystery to be believed. It's a mystery to be celebrated and a mystery to be lived. So, hopefully that answered, helped answer your question. Yes. I, I didn't see question. your question. Other than the Bible, what are your favorite books to read? What's that? What are your favorite books to read? Oh, what books do yeah. I rec uh -huh. recommend reading besides the Bible? Oh, there's so many. Oh my gosh. I got a big phone. Now, on this topic, it's a pretty much, I would read John Paul's encyclical on the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which means the church from the Eucharist, the church born of the Eucharist. That's beautiful. I'd read the apostolic exhortation of Pope Benedict XVI, Sacramentum Caritatis, Sacrament of Charity. I would also, there's also a beautiful, another uh, writing of John Paul called Mane uh, Nobiscum Domine, Remain With Us, Lord, which he wrote at the end of the year of the Eucharist, I think. I think at the beginning he wrote the encyclical, then the end he wrote this book, Remain With Us, Lord. As far as theology books, there are so many good books. I have a shelf full. I could get that for you. But there is a great book. Feingold is the last name of the author. If you want kind of a, a, a theology book, it's about this thick, but it's very readable. And it, it's on, he uses this thing that I talked about, mystery of presence, sacrifice, and communion. So some of his, uh, I think he explains all this in a very clear way. He looks at the history of the, like the things I was talking about, the Eucharistic controversies and all that. There's also a great book called The Hidden Manna. I used that book, I think it was O'Connor is the writer. I used that book in the, uh, my course in the seminary. So those are just a few suggestions, yeah. I actually have a few questions. Sure. Um, first is about the, what he was saying about Mary and her perpetual virginity. Um, What's the significance of that, and does the church consider childbirth a sin or anything like that? Yeah, well, the last part of that, definitely not. I mean, ch childbirth, obviously, sex within marriage is holy. And childbirth, 
is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But the perpetual virginity of Mary, it's, it's a sign of a, of a higher love. In other words, the marital love is beautiful between a husband and a wife. Virginity is a sign of the love between Christ and his church. But it's one that involves the, the spiritual side and therefore another type of sacrifice. For example, a priest who promises celibacy or a religious sister or brother who takes a vow of virginity. Why? It's so that they can give their whole lives in service of God, an act of love for God. And so their love is not limited or, or hindered by, by just being centered in a spouse and children. It's wider love. And so that's a special vocation in the church. Well, Mary, who married Joseph, is the mother of the church. And she, her love for God was tremendous. And her obedience, she gave her whole life as the mother of the Redeemer. And her spouse, Joseph, you know, also a man of great and courageous love, but they gave up sex for the sake of their mission to be the earthly, or him to be the earthly father of the Son of God. He made that sacrifice. And Mary, to give herself totally to God, remained a virgin. So. And um, my second question is, what exactly are uh, mortal sins? Does having um, a communion with a mortal sin another mortal sin? And what if someone commits these sins either habitually or they're like an addict? Right. Yeah. Well, no, very good question. To be a mortal sin, first of all, it has to be grave matter, has to be something serious. I mean, there's all kinds of little sins, venial sins that are not grave matter, a little white lie. I mean, is it, is it okay? No, but it's not mortal. You know, getting, you know, a kid fighting with his brother or sister generally is not a mortal sin. It's usually venial. It's not good. I mean, we commit venial sins, but mortal is one that is, is quite serious. So we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, you know, obviously killing, stealing, doing grave harm to somebody else. All those things are, are mortal sins, objectively speaking. But not only must it be grave matter, it must be something that you know is, is really seriously wrong. You know, there's some people who are, you know, not well-formed and they may commit a serious sin, but they don't know it's that bad. They never were taught. You know, maybe a kid who was raised in a parents who with parents who taught him to steal. You know, that, that there are kids like that. I mean, so they really don't know the gravity of the sin. So you have to know it's evil and then freely choose to do it deliberately. You know this offends God. You know this is serious. You know it's going to do harm, and you do it anyhow. You freely choose to do it. You see, all those are conditions. Those are the three conditions for it being a mortal sin. 
Now, if one knows that their mortal sin receives communion, yeah, one is committing another mortal sin. Now, these are not unforgivable. A person can still repent. You know, God's mercy is always there. So he calls us to convert, to change our hearts. And if you're questioning and you're not sure, you know, oh, did I commit a mortal sin? Go to confession and confess it, you know, in case it is. You know, now you have to be careful of not being falling into the thing of scrupulosity, which is more psychological. There's some people who are so scrupulous that every little thing, it just bothers them so much. They're running the confession every day. That's unhealthy. I mean, that, that, that becomes, that's more of a psychological problem. It's very difficult you know, for a confessor. You want to really, it's a burden, not for the confessor. It's a burden for the person that they're, that they're suffering from scrupulosity. Um, no, we have to remember God is merciful. We shouldn't be thinking that he's, he's up there kind of checking everything we, you know. Um, no, I mean, so we should form our consciences well, but not have scrupulous confidence, uh, consciences. Okay. Yes. Howdy, Bishop. Thank you for coming. You're welcome. Um, Howdy. <laughs> I just have uh, one question. I witnessed an online debate uh, about uh, Jesus's lineage, and uh, did he have any brothers or siblings? No, he did not, because um, Mary remained a virgin forever. In the Bible, when it talks about the brothers and sisters of Jesus, it's a Greek word, adelphoi, which was used to refer to any close relatives, okay? So... Even if it's translated brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean necessarily biological brothers and sisters. It could be one, uh, one's cousins, okay? So we believe that that's what happens in those references. There's some who think that maybe, although I don't think this is, I mean, that maybe Joseph had been married and had children and his wife died and then he married Mary. I mean, there's no evidence for that, but there's some who think that that's what the who the brothers and sisters would be, the children that Joseph had before he married Mary. But there's really no evidence for that. I mean, it's possible, but I don't think so. I think of Joseph as a young man. Mary's a little older than Mary, but you know, I think if there were actual biological brothers and sisters of, of Jesus, we would certainly know because they would have been prominent in the gospels and they're not. All right, I got another question for you. So I, there's a lot of talk, uh, or maybe not necessarily, I just feel like there, there's a lot of differing opinions on the proper way to receive communion, uh, whether that's uh, in the hand, on the tongue, whether you should be kneeling or standing or whatever. Um, and obviously all these are, are accepted by the church, but I'm just wondering if maybe you could explain a little bit about you know, why we're able to receive in different ways, you know, mm -hmm. or, or maybe why there's kind of these differing opinions about it among people. I know it's just an area of confusion for some people and, and a point of contention. Uh, no, I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, some people fight about this. Um, and, um, you know, I, I honestly think that the way, I mean, I think God looks at our hearts, I mean, if one chooses to receive in the hand, and they do so with reverence, I mean, we know that in the early centuries of the church, 
they received Holy Communion in their hand. We have that beautiful description of the Saint Cyril of Jerusalem who described receiving reverently in our hand. He even describes putting the one hand over the other. It's like receiving in your hands the king of the universe. And I mean, it's beautiful description. As the centuries went on, you know, the custom of just receiving on the tongue. So that became the norm. And that went on for many, many centuries until after the Second Vatican Council, which allowed the option, according to each Episcopal conference, of, of either communion in the hand or communion on the tongue. So both are allowed. I think both are equally reverent, in my opinion, because it's, it's what's in the person's heart. I mean, someone could say, oh, it's much more, uh, this person's better because they receive on the tongue. Well, that's not necessarily true. <laughs> I mean, you could have a very holy person, very close to Christ, receiving in the hand and vice versa. So I don't think we should judge. I don't think we should judge. And we shouldn't criticize anyone for the option that they have. Some may choose communion on the hand. Some may choose communion on the tongue. The church allows both. As far as kneeling or standing, this is another thing that has created some controversy. Again, we know that in the early centuries of the church, people received communion standing. It was only in the early Middle Ages that they started to receive kneeling. And then after the Second Vatican Council, of course, the, the, um, it was allowed to receive communion standing. And it was up to each Episcopal conference in the United States. The norm is that we stand when we receive Holy Communion, but a person who chooses to kneel shouldn't be denied communion. So a person could kneel to receive Holy Communion. I think it's unfortunate that people fight over this. I mean, people can have legitimate different opinions on this. I mean, I can, I can see that, I can see some of the theological rationale for receiving either way. Certainly in the East, in the Eastern Catholic Church, they have always received standing. They've never received kneeling because that's even seen as a more reverent way to receive. But then in the West, kind of the ideal of kneeling, which was always a penitential gesture, kneeling, also said, okay, we kneel out of respect for our Lord as a sign of of adoration, we kneel down. And that's very beautiful. And that's a great motivation for kneeling. But really that adoration of the heart is what is central. It's the same with communion in the hand and communion on the tongue. Same in the manner of receiving, standing, or kneeling. It's what's in the heart that's primary. And I, I, I just don't judge people by those things. So I don't know, I hope, I, I don't like people fighting over those things. I just think, wow, we're getting away. I mean, I've just described this tremendous mystery of the Eucharist, and we have these liturgical battles, which are not helpful for our unity. So I hope people just have mutual love and respect for the legitimate choices that are there. Yes. Thank you. Thank you.